all hail King Jesus, Savior of the world. It's a blessing to be here with you today to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. I am Pastor Seth, and I want to speak to you in these few minutes that we have together on this subject, From Death to Life. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture in two parts, uh, beginning in verse 1 here in just a moment, as we think about what Jesus has done for us and what that means to us in our lives with Him. There was a British preacher by the name of W.E. Sankster who lived in the 20th century, and in the middle part of the 20th century, He began to lose his voice and his mobility from a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. He recognized that the end was drawing near, so he threw himself into writing and praying, and in the midst of the suffering, he pleaded, let me stay in the struggle, Lord. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but just give me a regiment to lead. Sangster's voice eventually failed completely. And his legs became useless. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before his death, he took a pen and shakily wrote his daughter a letter. In it he said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical event of massive significance. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity and we would have no hope. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But we know from the Bible that Jesus of Nazareth died a violent and sacrificial death on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day he was raised from the dead. Gary Habermas is the distinguished research professor at Liberty University who I believe is the foremost expert in the world on the resurrection of Jesus in the current day. He's published something like 48 books and most of those have some focus on the resurrection. And he wrote this, he said, unquestionably, Jesus' resurrection from the dead stands at the very center of the Christian faith. Without it, there is no salvation. And our deceased loved ones are without a Christian hope. A glorious eternity for those who commit themselves to Jesus Christ's truth is based on his resurrection. There are over 300 verses on the resurrection in the New Testament. The external evidence of Jesus' resurrection confirms the truth that we have received via God's written revelation in his word. The resurrection is a witness to the power of God. It validates the identity of Jesus as the divine Son of God and as the promised Messiah. It is the assurance of our hope of being resurrected, and it empowers our life with God in the here and now. So in these few moments that we have together, let's consider what Mark's gospel tells us about the resurrection of Jesus and apply the truth to our lives. Now begin reading in verse 1 and go through verse 8. And this is what God's Word says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. 
Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. I want to show you, first of all, that when they arrived at the tomb, the stone was rolled away, signifying that Jesus was raised from death to life. The account opens with the words, when the Sabbath was over. Now, the Sabbath concluded on Saturday evening at sundown. And it was not yet the time for them to go and see the empty tomb. And the women, in anticipation of their going to do so the next morning, got spices and preparation to be able to take to the tomb to be able to prepare the body of Jesus. But in that time, as they waited, it must have been a dark time. Dark both literally and figuratively of what they were experiencing because they didn't know what to expect. They weren't sure everything that was taking place. There was a spiritual desperation about them because they had not yet seen the risen Lord. So they prepared themselves to go. The women went very early on Sunday, just after sunrise, to the tomb. They went to prepare his body. Somebody said that sorrow wakes early. They had a responsibility to carry out. In those days, the Jewish people did not embalm the bodies. Instead, they would take spices and they would prepare the dead body. So Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, went to do just that. The spices were intended to honor the one who had been deceased, as well as to take care of some things uh, in relation to the natural decomposition of a body that had died. Now, the tomb where Jesus was buried was that of a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea. It had never been used. That type of tomb would have been cut out of bedrock and a stone bench or a shelf would have been cut into the rock uh, parallel with the chamber. The entrance to the tomb would have been fairly low, but there would be a large stone that was placed in front of it to seal the tomb and to prepare it for the permanence of the one who had passed. And on their way to the tomb, the women knew that a large stone would have been in place in the tomb's entrance. So they're wondering, who's going to roll this stone away? Now, at first glance, we would think, did not Jesus tell them what to expect? How could they not be anticipating that he wouldn't be there? He told them that he was going to be crucified after suffering many things. He told them that he was going to be killed, and then in three days he was going to rise again. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he gives those very details. Even though they should have anticipated the resurrection, they weren't expecting to find 
an empty tomb. Now, according to Matthew's account, the tomb was guarded by the soldiers. They wanted to make sure that nobody came and stole the body of Jesus. The followers of Jesus would not have been able to move the stone on their own because it would have been well guarded. But when they arrived at the tomb, the stone had already been rolled away. And Matthew tells us once again that early, long before daybreak, that an angel had come and there was something supernatural that happened when he came. There was an earthquake and there was a a countenance like lightning bright and shining, so much so that he dazzled and dismayed the guards who had been set there to watch the tomb. And the stone had been rolled away. And when the women arrived at the tomb, they encountered a young man who is described as having clothes on uh, like a long white robe who was sitting there. Now, Mark does not directly identify the young man as an angel, but his supernatural character is clear from the ensuing narrative. What the women saw was an angel in the form of a person. This was a common way of manifesting God's messengers among his people when he had a message to bring them. They were doing the will of God. And the angel tells them about the resurrected Jesus. Luke and John specifically mention uh, two angels, Mark only one, but I think he's referencing the spokesperson of the two. Now, what did the angel say? He said in verse 6, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Now, the angel says, don't be alarmed. Easier said than done, friend. We're here in a moment of a supernatural event. Something has happened, and we don't know or understand completely what it is that has taken place. But he tells them, don't be alarmed. He's telling them to stop an action that has already begun. Stop being dumbfounded. Stop being terrified. I like the way one commentator put it. He said that the angelic messenger delivered the good tidings of Easter morning like an administrative assistant explaining why you can't have a quick word with the boss. You're looking for Jesus? Oh, sorry, you just missed him. He's gone on for more pressing business. And the angel says he is risen. He has risen from the dead. Now, in one word, a one-word sentence in the original language He has risen. He states the reality of a past event. Now, that's significant because the verb is passive. It indicates that Jesus has already been raised from the dead, and God's word is now announcing the greatest miracle that has ever taken place on the earth, the central truth of historic Christianity, telling them the reality of what has happened. And the angel shows them the empty tomb. He says, see the place they laid him. Go ahead and take a look for yourself. Make sure he's not there. Uh, Go ahead and and look here and you'll see that Jesus is not here because he has risen. Now, I find it interesting that few, uh, what I would call even in a skeptical age, few intellectually honest skeptics actually deny the essential events around the end of the life of Jesus. It is one of the most solidly attested to series of events in the history of the world. We are not taking a blind leap into the unknown when we believe in the life, in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection of Jesus. We are holding to what the Bible says is true, but also what the external evidence has corroborated. 
And when you think about the trial and the crucifixion and the burial and the guards and the seal and the empty tomb, there's an overwhelming amount of historical evidence that supports it all. Uh, William Lane wrote this in his commentary on Mark. He said, even the most extreme skeptics do not deny that the grave was empty, including the early Jewish polemicist. Where was the body? Now track with this. The Jews did not have it, for they would have produced it post-haste. The disciples did not have it. If they did, it would have been psychologically and spiritually impossible for them to live the dedicated martyrs' lives and the deaths that they experienced. The Romans certainly didn't have it, or they would have produced it to refute the narrative of the resurrection because it would cause them nothing ultimately but trouble. The body was gone, and the grave clothes remained. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped the dead body with linen cloths, and the stone was rolled away, signifying that Jesus was raised from death to life. And then second, instruction was given. And here's the instruction. Go and tell that Jesus was raised from death to life. That is the message of the church. It's always been the message of the New Testament church. It will remain the message of the New Testament church until Jesus returns. And he says, go and tell his disciples. But then he also says, and Peter. And we'll come back to that in just a second. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. The angel wanted them to go and tell Peter specifically. Peter is the disciple who denied Jesus three times. Jesus had said that he would do that before the rooster crowed in the morning. Jesus and his disciples had gone out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested in the evening. Jesus was taken to the high priest Caiaphas's house. And there, Peter was shut out of the courtyard. The servant girl at the courtyard door asked Peter if he was one of Jesus' disciples. The way he spoke had betrayed him. He says, who, me? No, not me. Don't know anything about it. I'm not one of those. And that was the first denial. Peter was then later asked twice if he was a follower of Jesus. The question came, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter says, no, not me, leading to the second and the third denial before the rooster had even crowed. It was easy for us to look at the women and say, how could they not believe Jesus told them what was going to happen? How were they not expecting that the tomb was going to be empty when they got there? It's easier for us to look at Peter and say, how could Peter... A man who had been with Jesus, who had experienced the miraculous power of Jesus up close and personal, how could he deny the Lord? Well, Peter, like us, was a man who resided in his flesh. He was a man who got scared. He was a man who was concerned about what was going to happen to his own life. He was a man who had weaknesses. And the significance of telling Peter about the resurrected Lord is a reminder that Jesus would forgive him, even of denying him, and he would still be included among the disciples despite his triple denial. 
Jesus was going ahead of them into Galilee, just as he had told them. Earlier, Jesus promised a reunion in Mark chapter 14 and verse 28. It says, but after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. His followers would see him there in a resurrection appearance. Now, I believe the specific reference that is given here in Mark's gospel correlates with the account that John gives us in John chapter 21 on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, specifically in the restoration of Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter replies, you know I do, Lord. Again, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter cried, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter was to shepherd the flock of God. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came and indwelt the believers, Peter was empowered to be a magnificent preacher of the gospel and a sacrificial servant of the Lord. So the angel sent a personal word to Peter when he spoke to the women at the tomb. Go and tell Peter. At first, the impulse of the women was to run away from the tomb. They're trembling, they're astonished, they're overwhelmed. And at first, they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. Uh, Somebody said that their fear might have been more than natural fright. It was probably an awe of God that we see throughout the Bible, and I think that's certainly true. I think they had such a reverential fear of God and an awe of God based on what was happening that they were overwhelmed. And they're hesitant at first to tell, but then Luke 24 and verse 9 says, they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. The call to believers, and that's us today, 21st century, real-time responsibility is to go and tell. You say, how are we to go and tell? We are to go and tell the good news everywhere to everyone. That's the mission of the church. We sometimes complicate it. We weigh it down with a lot of different things that may or may not be helpful to the mission. But when it comes down to the very heart of it all, the responsibility is to go and tell. We have good news. This is not any good news. This is the best of all news. It's the news that people can be forgiven of their sins. They can be in right standing with the God who created them and now redeems them. That they can have the gift of everlasting life and a relationship with God, communion with God, and the promise of a home in heaven. Who does not want that kind of good news? And why, if we have this good news, are we so reticent at times to tell it? We've been filled with the Spirit. We have the truth of the Word. We've been commanded by Jesus to take this message, and we should go and tell that Jesus was raised from death to life. That's the message of the church. And that brings me to the third and final point, and that is faith is the key to receiving the power of Jesus being raised from death to life. Now, in some translations, Mark chapter 16 and verse 9 to the end of the chapter is not included. The reasoning for that is that two of the oldest Greek manuscripts do not contain that section. 
However, I do not think it is likely at all that the Gospel of Mark ended so sharply at verse 8 with the women being afraid and lacking an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said that it's difficult to believe that Mark ended his gospel with verse 8 unless he was interrupted. He said a leaf or a column may have been torn off at the end of the papyrus roll. There's also evidence that the earliest Christians knew about and accepted as the word of God the longer ending of Mark as genuine. Papias referred to verse 8 and following around 100 A.D., Justin Martyr quoted from Mark 16 and verse 20 in 151 A.D. And so we take it as the word of God that has been given to us without any mixture of error, without any contradiction, without anything except truth that has been delivered to us. And I begin reading now in verse 9. And the scripture says, early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. So here we go again. We've got the same theme that keeps coming up again and again because of the hardness of people's hearts. Verse 12, after this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country. And they went and reported it to the rest who did not believe them either. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And then he said to them, this is the great commission in Mark in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. According to verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two disciples. Uh, This is the road to Emmaus experience as they walked. They did not believe it either. Then he appears to the 11 disciples and rebuked their unbelief. So Jesus is like, boys, what are y'all thinking? I was with you for three years. I told you what was going to happen more than once, and yet you're still not believing. He had to have said something along those lines because their unbelief was an affront to what they had been told and what they had been promised, and it's attributed to the hardness of their hearts. And here he communicates the great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And he says something in verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I want to be absolutely clear about verse 16 so there is no misunderstanding whatsoever. Salvation comes to us as a gift of God's grace when we believe in Jesus for salvation. Baptism is not required for your salvation, but it is a symbol of your belief. It is necessary for obedience. And it is clear in the wording of this verse in verse 16 that whoever does not believe will be condemned. He doesn't say whoever's not baptized will be condemned. He said whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are saved by grace through faith when we understand and believe the truth about Jesus. That he came, he lived, he was tempted at every point as we are, yet without sin. He fulfilled the law of God, accomplishing what no other human being could accomplish as the son of God in the flesh. He died in our place as the substitution for our sins on the cross. He took the wrath that we deserved, the penalty that we deserved. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And we put our faith and trust in him because he is the savior of the world. Now, let's step back just for a moment and think about what it must have been like to have experienced the risen Jesus. I mean, like to have been in the room with him or to have been there on the seashore at the Sea of Galilee when the fish are being cooked and the communion's being had or, or when they were there in the room and, and, and Jesus is talking to them about what's taking place, all the different appearances that he makes to them. It must have been something to see the risen Jesus. But I want to remind you what Jesus said to Thomas. You remember what we call Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Ultimately, that's us. I wasn't there at that time when Jesus was raised from the dead. I didn't experience one of those in-person circumstances where I got to see Jesus or to put my hand on his hands or in his side. I didn't get to talk with him there by the shore. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter would later write this in 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. He said, without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. This is a message for us that today on this Resurrection Sunday 2023, we believe in him and we love him though we have not seen him. And we rejoice together with unutterable and exalted joy. Saving faith knows what has taken place, the basic truth of the gospel, believes that it's true, and then puts its faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Faith is the key to receiving the power of Jesus being raised from death to life. And I don't know, maybe you came here this morning with a wife or a husband or a parent or a child, and you might have felt some sense of obligation simply because it's Resurrection Sunday. People go to church on Easter. They, they go to church to celebrate these things. But in your heart of hearts, you would have to say that you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know whether or not you do. I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's not my responsibility to determine whether or not you do. It's my responsibility to communicate the truth to you. But what I want you to know today is that you're not here by accident. God does everything with a purpose. And you are here today, and if you do not know Jesus, if you have not yet been saved, your life could change in an instant for all of eternity. This is the power of the gospel, that you can be transferred from death to life, that you can be rescued 
from darkness and you can be placed in the light. That you can be delivered from hell and you can be on your way to heaven. If you only believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. That's you today. If you say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I know that if if I died tonight, I would not go to an eternity with God. Well, then God has brought you here so that that can change today. In this moment, today is the day of salvation. If you only repent and believe in him. That's the hope that we're talking about today. And we celebrate that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he has risen. That's our hope. And I want to give you very quickly four implications of the resurrection for believers as we conclude. The first is that the resurrection of Jesus authenticates Jesus as the eternal son of God and the promised Messiah. The resurrection authenticates who Jesus is and what he's done. Second, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the authority of Jesus over death. He has won the victory over death, hell, and the grave. And because Jesus is the victor, we can have the victory. That we take part in that, that he gives that to us as a gift. So that death is not the end of the story. And third, the resurrection of Jesus points to the new birth through the hope of the gospel as well as the power of God to be able to live the Christian life. So in other words, God saves us by his grace and that resurrection power raises us from death to life. But then that same resurrection power gives us the power to live for God. It's not try harder and do better. It's rest in what God has done for you and see his power at work through your life. And then the fourth and final implication is that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of believers to eternal life. I can tell you that when the end comes for all of us, and it will, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, we're going somewhere. This is not all there is. And we can either go and be separated from God forever or we can seamlessly make a transition into the eternal presence of God. For the Christian, for those who are in Christ, when our lives on this earth end, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We end our lives on this earth and we make a seamless transition into the presence of God. And the good shepherd takes us by the hand and he ushers us safely home while our bodies remain on this earth awaiting the resurrection. And someday there's going to be a resurrection of believers and we're going to be raised with a glorified body with which we will live forever in heaven with God. I am thankful to tell you today that death is not the end for the Christian. It's the beginning. Death's not the end for the lost person either. It's the beginning of something altogether different, but something I don't want you to experience. I want you to experience life with God now And I want you to experience life with God for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had here today in celebration of Jesus. All hail King Jesus, the Savior of the world. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, as we've come together as your church. I pray with my brothers and sisters in Christ and we rejoice with an unutterable joy and hope 
of, of what you've done for us. We are not afraid of the future. Uh, we have faith about what's coming because of what you have accomplished, Jesus, as the victor over death, hell, and the grave. And I pray that we would live in light of that as a people who are faithful to go and tell. There are people in the darkest places on the earth who don't yet know Jesus. And there are people who live right next to us who don't yet know Jesus. And I pray that we would be faithful in both to share that good news. And Lord, that in our own families, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and then all across the world, that we would see people coming and being moved from death to life in him. Father, I pray especially for anybody who's here today who has not yet uh, become a follower of Jesus. I pray that they would not just know about this resurrection from a, from a historical standpoint or, or even just from a position of, of respect and a general understanding of what has taken place, but I pray that they would know you personally and that they would receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and have their life transformed forever. So God, we give this time of close and response over to you, and we ask you to work through it as you see fit, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will stand with us.